Did China abandon communism and embrace a new and different system called technocracy? Why is there a danger of technocracy spreading to other countries, including the United States? Could China make some sort of move against Taiwan after the recent election to ensure it will never leave the mother state? What development in recent years appears to have handed victory to the multipolar Russia-China mold versus the unipolar U.S.-NATO mold? This week on the Global Research News Hour, following the victory of a party in Taiwan favoring independence from China and following years' worth of Sinophobia cemented by the West after the COVID-19 fiasco, we're taking a look at the positive and not-so-positive factors that have made one of the world's most populous countries what it is today. In our first half hour, we are joined by author Patrick Wood of Technocracy.News. He explains how the Trilateral Commission actually turned the country into a technocracy which is spreading around the world, including America itself, and why this is alarming to him. Then in the second half hour, we are joined once again by journalist and independent writer Pepe Escobar, who does not see China launching attack on Taiwan following the election of the Democratic Progressive Party, and instead explains how China is on a roll while the U.S. continues to wither away. On this week's program, Technocratic Victory for China, Cold War 2.0 in the Year of the Dragon. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 19th, 2024. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. European settlers gained the bounty of the land and waters of this turtle island and are obliged to remember the indigenous people they stole it from, or took it using faulty treaties and promises and resulting in instances of colonialism and genocide. The descendants should recognize and acknowledge this fact, pay reparations, and ensure a renewed partnership based on respect and not duplicating the crimes of the past. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. One ex-user pointed out, quote, None of these brands have anything to do with Yemen and the U.S. didn't invade Yemen. Also, why is their idea of a boycott just targeting snacks, unquote? Actually, boycotting these brands will improve your health too. Another ex-user said, These calls come as boycotts across the Middle East have battered Western brands 
following the deadly Hamas attack in southern Israel on October 7th. McDonald's CEO Chris Kemchinsky wrote a LinkedIn post earlier this month that explained the Middle East boycotts have had a, quote, meaningful business impact, unquote. That comes from the article, Western Brands Boycott Calls Intensify After U.S. Jets Bomb Yemen, posted January 17th, originally published on Zero Hedge. Shot Dead the Movie tells the heartbreaking stories of children who died after receiving COVID-19 shots. Their parents are left behind to pick up the pieces, wondering how and why a shot they were assured was safe took the lives of their children, ranging in age from newborn to 18. While the UK and Denmark stopped their vaccination programs for children, US health authorities continue to state adverse reactions are quote-unquote rare and the benefits of COVID-19 shots outweigh the risks of COVID-19 for children. Even as children are dying, no warnings have been issued to let parents know of this very real risk. Meanwhile, parents of children who have died say they're being given the runaround from different agencies and purposely being kept in the dark. That comes from the article, Shot Dead the Movie, Heartbreaking Stories of Children Who Died After Receiving COVID-19 Shots by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted January 17th, originally published on the Mercola website. What once was a government that needed the consent of the governed not only to exist, but also to do anything is now one that requires of us its permission to do nearly everything. What once were liberties guaranteed are now liberties mocked. This is an inversion from what the revolutionary generation left us. How is it that men and women take oaths to uphold the liberties that the founders risked all to achieve and then enter office and ignore them? If I can legally refuse health care, why can't I legally take the chance of exercising my rights to drink whatever milk product I want to drink? That comes from the article, Milk and the Police State, Another State Bureaucratic Steroid Overdose in Action, by Judge Andrew P. Napolitano, posted January 17th, originally published on Judging Freedom. Latouf had not, for instance, decided to become a flag-swathed bomb-thrower for the Palestinian cause. She had engaged in no hostage-taking campaign, nor intimidated any Israeli figure. The sacking had purportedly been made over sharing a post by Human Rights Watch about Israel that mentioned, quote, using starvation of civilians as a weapon of war in Gaza, unquote, calling it, quote, a war crime, unquote. It also noted the express intention by Israeli officials to pursue this strategy. Actions are also documented. The deliberate blocking of the delivery of food, water, and fuel, quote, while willfully obstructing the entry of aid, unquote. That comes from the article, Cancelling the Journalist, the ABC's Coverage of the Israel-Gaza War, by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted January 17th. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. China is a technocracy. That is with a new governing system that is neither communist, nor capitalist, nor democratic. This is the point of view argued by my first guest, Patrick Wood. He's a leading and critical expert on sustainable development, green economy, Agenda 21, 2030 Agenda, and historic technocracy. Also a frequent speaker and guest on radio shows across the United States. The Global Research News Hour got hold of him and started our conversation by getting him to help define technocracy. Technocracy as it was invented in 1932, um, was defined as a replacement economic system for free market economics and capitalism. Uh, there is no other way to explain it. It was a re- resource-based economic system, not predicated on supply and demand. Uh, money was going to be exchanged for energy, uh, and, and in particular, energy script that would serve as uh, a a currency, sort of, so to speak, to uh, regulate the economic activity. Mm. It's also interesting that they they um, were very interested in social engineering as well. There, there was a problem that they had that w- they couldn't make things, uh, factories, and so on. You you couldn't get people to do what you wanted them to do. So they they uh, created this elaborate system of social engineering, and they call it a science, a science of social engineering. We see this today almost everywhere we look. So I guess people when, are messing on our, with our minds. That that there's no end of it, right? <laughs> when it, it it first occurred to people, I guess the technology wasn't quite ready. Fifty or sixty or seventy years later. The, the technology is caught up and, and now they're, mm-hmm. they're moving ahead, right? That's exactly right. And uh. it, uh, it got it, the whole concept was adopted by the trilateral commission, as I argue in my books, um, that was, uh, created by uh, David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1979, or excuse me, 1973. <clears throat> and the trilateral commission stated that he it wanted to create a new international economic order that was all over the literature at that time. And I see now that they were talking about technocracy as a new economic system. They didn't really specify back there back then, but I see it now very clearly that that's what they were uh, talking about back then. You wrote that the the Trilateral Commission and Henry Kissinger in particular played roles in in taking the, the, the uh, China as a communist state and turning it in, into a technocracy. Explain you know what uh, what went on and 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 what how, how it's uh, gone from being a communist country to no longer a, uh, to being more of a technocracy. Well, um, Brzezinski in nineteen seventy six brought. Deng Xiaoping to the United States, wind him, that, that, that was the chairman of the Communist Party at that point, 
they wind him, uh, they dined him and, you know, brought him into the, onto the, uh, the world stage. Uh, at that point, China looked a lot like North Korea does today. They basically had no economic system at all. They were mired in poverty as a, as a nation as, and as a people. And when uh, Brzezinski got a hold of him, Chairman Deng, he taught him about technocracy, not about capitalism, not about free market economics. He 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 taught him about technocracy. Now let, let me let me back up here and say why. The thing that endeared to uh, Brzezinski, to Rockefeller, was Brzezinski's book, uh, circa uh, 1970, called uh, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. That was the exact title of his book. In that book, <clears throat> he described um, a vision of how technology was going to be used to basically conquer the world. He, he foresaw a future age where this technotronic era, it really should have been technotratic, but you know, that that's what he, that's the, use, the, the term he uses. Um, so this is what, um, this is what China started, started out with with this vision of the technotronic era, we've seen this. I've, I, as on, as uh, I've seen this, I, uh, others haven't, obviously, but I see this as um, an, an, a continuing um, uh, threat against the free world, where they are they're marching to a different drummer. And it's not capitalism, it's not communism, but scholars have let, pointed out that technocracy has become the de facto system that China is operating under right now. And that's not be not just not me saying that. Legitimate, well, China you know, people study like uh, China, um, uh, per, per, uh, political science people and so on. They see it, but nobody else wants to really hear what we have to say about mm. it. But... Wow. Um, so so China was really the first test case, as it were, where, where the yes. principles being applied. I mean, what what exactly the whole roster of reasons why they made China the the, the test case? It was a blank a blank slate. There there was nothing blocking them. They the huge China had a huge population, number one. But it was an absolute uh, empty chalkboard. <laughs> you can put anything on it you want to. That's what they did. Um, there was no other uh, nation on earth of the size of China that could be plied by these people. That is the, the elitist of the Trilateral Commission. And when their 
contractors, they're, they're, they're companies that, uh, that belong to the Trilateral Commission. When they moved in on China, it staged, it, it, it staged all the infrastructure that they needed, that, that they would need to conquer the West with all the industries that subsequently moved to China, took away jobs from us, took away economic activity from us. And this was their mission. They wanted to build this nation quickly into a technocratic model that can that would export itself all over the world, including back to us again. So there are other uh, nations that are also becoming, uh, you know, taking on te technocracy. Is this all like, uh, you know, you, you planted the seed in China and it spread from there to Singapore, South Korea, uh, and, uh, you know, other places? Or uh, did was there the, the United States involvement in, in helping to spread it around the, uh, uh, beyond China? Well, there's two parts of that story. One is China, China is proud that they have uh, ex, they, they've taken their influence to nations around the world who would uh, receive it to export their technocracy to those nations. On the other hand, you look at the United States now, which has been a willing participant with China to this same end. Um, this follows a very long uh, history of finance by uh, Wall Street interests, for instance, uh, again, and also uh, global multinational corporations. Um, these people, and let's let's look too at uh, the the uh, World Economic Forum too, with all the companies that are and in, invested in them. Um, <clears throat> all of these forces have seemingly joined up with China to ex to export uh, technocracy all over the world. The United Nations has had a plan uh, place in this as well with sustainable development. It's the same you know, warmed over techno technocracy from the uh, last century. But um, the United Nations has pushed this sustainable development agenda all over the world. And China's big with the United Nations, as you know as well. But uh, they've, they've been doing this uh, by stealth, mostly, for the last 50 years. And here we are now. What are some of the, the specific concerns you have about technocracy that have begun to manifest in countries like the United States or France or, or Canada and, and you know, countries of that high grade? It's going to result in a scientific dictatorship at some point. It's, all, it's on its way right now. I, a lot of people can see it especially in like China with their social credit store scoring system uh, where they can control people uh, just al almost to minutia. Um, but 
the sci the concept of a scientific dictatorship is that the science, the algorithm, the alg the AI, etc., will manage the human population as a dictator, not as a person. It will like a you know uh, a human might be uh, maybe a Hitler or uh, Nero or whatever for from history. But a scientific dictatorship will have absolutely no compassion, no capacity to, for mercy or human values that we would like to be part of. Um, and the result of it is all personal freedom will be gone, will be gone, absolutely uh, smashed. I know that uh, you, you started to write about uh, artificial intelligence. We just mentioned it, AI. And I mean, I, I've heard uh, recently that someone said that uh, now that employers are, uh, you, they're not in evaluating people like you, who, who apply for jobs. You let AI do it and then they'll screen out people on all kinds of weird principles, you know, like, you know, even the, the, the adjustment of their name or, or other things that, that we maybe something we didn't intend, but the AIs are doing it. Not not exactly the direction I saw it going, but, uh, you know, you, do you think that that the existence of this AI, and it's still kind of, we're not quite sure where it's going, but will it act as an accelerator of sorts to technocracy and then these distinctions that you've expressed? Absolutely. And I want to say that, uh, that, AI and most of, or less most of the um, progressive uh, technocracy uh, te technologies that we see to today, these are all they they've all been sponsored by technocrats along the way who do not care about ethical values or moral values and what they do. They they invent because they can, not because anybody asks them to. Uh, they're moral as a group. They're moral morally bankrupt, in my opinion. Um, but when when somebody like a uh, Sam Altman, for instance, uh, talks about OpenAI, you'll see him talking about, well, it's, it's, it's going to be a big threat to humanity. It can, it can destroy us all in the end. Uh, other AI people are saying that too, by the way. But then they go back to their own turf, to their own uh, drawing board, get out their whip, and slam their uh, programmers and to get high gear, get with it, guys. We got to be, you know, we're going to beat the competition out there. There's no check checks and balances in this. We see this with other things as well. Big pharma is a big one right now. These people are totally uh, unplugged from reality, in my opinion, and they're they also exhibit a technocratic a technocratic uh, mindset that's so dangerous. They're, they, they, they're coming up with stuff uh, that they should not even be be doing experiments with. Hmm. But so, yeah, you know, it seems like we're not 
that uh, it's starting off as AI being servants to uh, humankind, but now pretty soon it's going to be the other way around, right? <laughs> well, it is, and that this this is wasn't this is what is intended in the first place. Hmm. It may have started off, you know, more innocuous, but now that these technocrat minds have got a hold of it, they see this as the the end game of social engineering. Hmm. This was in their plan. This was in their credo way back in the 1930s. They wanted to use the science of social engineering to control everything in society. They can do that now. Uh, they're at least at least they're on the verge of it right now. We see this AI is is just sweeping the world, and it's showing up in all the places that's displacing workers. <laughs> I saw this this article yes, yesterday, it was, uh, I think, um, that Walmart now is firing all of the people who checks the, uh, the receipts when you leave the store, you know, the checkers, what I don't know what they, what, don't know what they yeah. call them, but you know, they sit there and they look at your basket and then uh, give you a check mark and there you go, you, you leave the store with whatever you bought, whatever you bought, they're using AI now to check these baskets completely. No humans now are going to do this. And they said they're going to fire every checker in the country. And they're, they're going to replace it with an AI scanner who can see exactly what you've got in your, uh, in your cart they don't say that they're going to record your conversation or they take a picture of you for you know facial recognition scans <laughs> but i i wouldn't be surprised if it does but uh you know this is we see this everywhere now you you keep if once your eyes are open to it you'll see it being applied uh in in all unexpected places mm. Yeah, well, we're just about out of time now, but uh, would you like to add any remaining thoughts you have about the technocratic course China's been on and how other countries are either embracing yes. and, and how they can resist China's yes. technocratic example? Yes, uh, let me just, uh, let me say that uh, the Rockefeller crowd has always been fond of China going back to the uh, 1920s, at least, uh, they've had a, a love affair with China. And that probably uh, added to uh, their desire to, you know, bring China back on this, uh, the word world stage. Um, we see people like Brzezinski achieving this. We see this with people like um, the late Henry Kissinger, uh, who was the forerunner of Brzezinski to bring China out of the Dark Ages. Um, Kissinger was a Rockefeller man since his college days. He served as an agent of Rockefeller personally and as a stooge of, with the, with the uh, Trilateral Commission as well. But you might you might remember that Kissinger recently bragged 
that he had been to China on over 100 trips in his lifetime. You have to think what that means. There were some years that he went once, other years he went four times, uh, perhaps, but he was in love with China all those years. And uh, when he died, uh, Chairman Z says, uh, said about Henry Kissinger that he was our most valuable and trusted friend over the decades. It just tells you something about what's going on here. Yeah. And just like in the, in the minute we got left, I mean, you just to maybe remind us about how uh, we could go about resisting this technocratic uh, example that's uh, you You bet. People can go to technocracy.news. That's the first place that I would go to get in the swim of the, uh, the news here. Uh, I would all, also encourage people to go to citizensforfreespeech.org to see where, uh, the, or at least the role that free speech is going to play this year, especially in 2024. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We just heard an interview with Patrick Wood, a leading expert on historic technocracy. He is the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation in 2015, and co-author of Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2, from 1978 to 1980, with the late Anthony C. Sutton. On his website, you will find recent articles about the World Economic Forum and about the United Nations declaring war on free speech, specifically targeting 2024. Check out technocracy.news. So last weekend's Taiwan elections uh, resulted in a third consecutive four-year term for the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP. The party favors separation from Canada, from China, though not immediately. Uh, the result was reported by Western press outlets as a blow to China, as, as the man itself described as the destroyer of peace is now in power. For the U.S., uh, just as Ukraine was used as a tool to weaken Russia, Taiwan could be the dent in the armor of China uh, and was seen as the next major step to hegemonity uh, once Russia was dealt with. So where do things stand right now? Is the U.S. war with China advancing to the next stage or is it a lot of smoke and mirrors not amounting to anything, really? Well, we caught up with Pepe Escobar, an independent mm -hmm. chief political analyst, writer, and journalist who's spoken on developments among the Russia-China-Iran-BRICS uh, axis of resistance. Uh, and he joins us now from Paris. It's good to have you with us, Pepe. Thank this, you. This election result was actually a weaker result in the sense that it only commands a minority of the seats in the legislative body. Um, does that mean the U.S. concern about increasing chances of China uh, possibly marching militarily into Taiwan to fend off any threat to the one China principle. Does that have any merit? Oh, God. <laughs> this Look, I've been listening to this bullshit 
stupid. For yeah. so long, I really lost track. You know, when, when I used to live in Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Hong Kong, Thailand, I used to go to China a lot uh, during the war on terror years, etc. There's not going to be a Chinese invasion of China. This is a figment of uh, Straussian uh, neocon cycles imagination. These people obviously never read Deng Xiaoping. And it's very easy. Why don't you get Deng Xiaoping's uh, complete works? It's all there. There's no rush. The reunification of Taiwan will happen when the conditions are ripe. And the, let's say, uh, informal deadline, which Deng was always reiterating, is 2049. Mm. What is happening what has been happening is happening will continue to happen is endless american provocations because they want to force beijing's hand and obviously they use their fifth columnists all over taipei they use to 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 manipulate the american embassy in hong kong for that matter uh they have their color revolution specialists uh uh, working in reverse in Taipei, you name it. This yeah. re The result of this election is very straightforward. I'll cut to the chase, totally. Lai got basically 40% of the votes. So he is, for all practical purposes, a lame duck president. The opposition, unfortunately, because they are split, they got roughly 60% of the vote. So Lai got 40.5% compared to uh, Tai uh, la, la, the last time when she got 57%. So it's a minority government. They lost their parliamentary majority. Uh, they have most of the, the country, in fact, against them. Let's say uh, almost uh, uh, easily, uh, almost two thirds of the country against them. And what the Taiwanese, and this is something that uh, uh, from Hong Kong and from Shanghai, from other parts of the Chinese diaspora, we get inside information from Taipei. And what the Taiwanese basically say directly or between the lines is we prefer the status quo. So this means nothing is going to change for a long, long time. Uh, they know that Beijing is not going to do anything rash. They know that uh, it would be absolutely foolish and suicidal for a, a minority president, for instance, to declare or push, push for independence or declare independence. So the status quo is the default uh, position of the overwhelming majority of Taiwanese. Obviously, none of that will uh, uh, preclude more uh, uh, American operations of destabilizing American operations, all sorts of hybrid war you can imagine, or even later on, depending on how things evolve in the next two or three years, a, a false flag or a series of false flags. Mm -hmm. But uh, if we take into consideration what Beijing wants, what Xi Jinping wants, and what the Taiwanese population want, there will be nothing violent on the horizon for the next years and we can even say decades. When we start approaching 2049, it's another matter because then uh, it, it's already happening now. 
the interconnection, uh, geoeconomic especially, between Taiwan and the mainland is huge. Not to mention, of course, this is all facilitated by the fact that uh, most of them study in the same schools and they speak the same language. So it's basically already integrated. Uh, what the Chinese may come up with uh, in, I would say, in the midterm is a sort of one country, three systems. One country, two systems applies to Hong Kong. One country, three systems would apply to Taiwan, like Taiwan with an enormous margin of autonomy, but part of the, the mainland as well. This is something that could evolve, and I'm sure the people around Xi could come up with a very seductive framework that will be accepted by the majority of the Taiwanese population as well. Everything apart from that is American wishful thinking, wet dreams, speculation, and frankly, impotence. Mm. Because they know that to, to provoke a, a, a war, a, a proxy war against China via Taiwan could probably be their Ukraine or Ukraine 2.0. And we all know what's happening to Ukraine right now. So I end my case here. Yeah. Well, in your recent article, Year of the Dragon, Silk Roads, Bricks Roads, Sino, Ro Sino Roads, um, you know, we, we see about how you know, China and uh, its, its allies have been building bridges, building high-speed rail all across uh, Eurasia, basically. And uh, you know this is a, is a counterpart to the United States going and you know starting wars here and there on you know well they're, they're engaged in, in two wars right now they had a whole bunch of wars uh, oh, and I think they, they must be getting a little bit uh, leery about entering into any new conflicts uh, certainly uh, you know a military conflict in in, in China is, is simply off the table although. Uh, you know, I I don't know about the colored revolutions on, but but we'll have anyway. I, I'm wondering about these these plans there because it, it seems to be you know kind of critical for its uh, for for China's rise and success. And when exactly did it have its origin? I mean, is this part of a a long term strategy? Did it start way back in in the 1970s when it started its economic rise, or or did it follow its rise uh, in might? Well, this is uh, this is just the story of my professional life this past 30 years. <laughs> I've been writing about this practically on a weekly basis since uh, the mid-90s when I moved. I moved to Asia 30 years ago, in fact. Uh, I moved to Asia from the West in 1994 because I wanted to know uh, Asia from the inside and especially what I had seen in China when I traveled in China in the early 90s which was, it happened to coincide with Deng Xiaoping's visit, the famous visit to the South, when Deng Xiaoping went to uh, Shenzhen, Dongguan, Guangzhou, and he gave the major impetus for the, the modernization drive of China based on these special economic zones in the South and, and, and also in Shanghai. So when you see that in front of you happening, I, I was so floored. And I said, wow, I have to come here and try to understand this from the inside. Then when you start living in Asia and when you start going to China on a, on a uh, frequent basis, and in my case, when you live in Hong Kong, where you have access to everything, 
uh, all, all sorts of information coming from China, they transit uh, through Hong Kong. Then you understand the big picture and you understand uh, the long-term big picture, which came not only from Deng when Deng came to power in 78, it came during the Mao industrialization era. And that's why in this column that you mentioned, I reference uh, one of the very, very good books about it, explaining how everything that then Deng, in fact, uh, could use later on in this industrialization drive in the 80s and in the 90s, the bases were put by the industrialized, the very complicated process of industrialization of China initiated during Mao. So when you when you understand, so this, this did not come out of the blue, and uh, China as a big power, it's not something that started when they entered the the, the uh, WTO in two thousand and one. You know. 20 years ago. It started 50 years ago, at least, not more. And, and that's what's extraordinary. They are, uh, there's a constancy to it. There's, there are degrees, very complex degrees of planning in terms of uh, uh, succeeding uh, five-year plans that demultiply in, 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 into three five-year plans in one, for instance. You know, two or three years ago, they were already planning all the way to 2035. This is something that is absolutely impossible in the West, where uh, the, the US cannot plan for next week. Can you imagine doing three five-year plans and discussing it, and discussing uh, out of a grassroots basis, which is something that many people in the West don't understand. Lots of decisions that arrive at the Politburo and then at uh, Xi's desk, for instance, they start at the grassroots level. They are presented in grassroots meetings. They go to regional governments and then they, they start climbing the pyramid. And then one day they reach the pyramid and there is a decision based on something that started in a, a little prefecture in the middle of a, a, a province in Sichuan, for instance. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's a form of... A, direct democracy that is not, it's not that it's not fully appreciated in the West, it's not even understood how it works. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that's what makes it so uh, that, uh, so special in terms of uh, the Chinese system for uh, everything that we can criticize about it. There's no question about that. It's essentially a meritocratic system. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what she has been very, very careful to emphasize since he came to power and since he started uh, the overarching uh, uh, international uh, Chinese uh, framework of development connectivity, which is the Belt and Road Initiative, started a little over 10 years ago. Uh, they learn from their mistakes. They are always applying Deng Xiaoping, you know, uh, crossing the river while filling the stones. So, you know, you may slip in one of the stones, fall into the river, then you go back and you learn from your mistake. And this is what they're doing all the time. In terms of the Belt and Road, for instance, they made a lot of mistakes in the beginning in terms of uh, loans uh, that went to projects that would go nowhere or, you know, instead of relying in a local workforce, bringing uh, loads of Chinese workers. And they are learning. They are uh, reorganizing all that. Uh, they, they, uh, alert, they are learning from the Russians as well in terms of... Uh, 
Russia Russia is a multipolar, a multinational, multinational society. Minorities living in Russia. The Chinese are learning to be more supple vis-a-vis -vis their minorities the way the Russians are. So, so, and this all has to do with high levels of education and meritocracy, which seems to be the exact opposite of what's happening with the West right now. Low levels of education, lower and lower, and no meritocracy at all. Yeah, interesting. Um, could you talk about uh, the artificial intelligence just for a minute, AI, because, you know, the U.S., uh, chips for AI, uh, they are manufactured largely in, in Taiwan, I, I, you know, the, the NVIDIA, uh, the Chinese, yes. Chinese chips that are, are faster now are, are being developed in China. And, of and, course. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, but they could lead to China, like, because the U.S. is in the lead right now, but China could overtake them by, by 2030 or so. Um, could, could you talk about the development of that technology, also its role in, in the Taiwan situation and where this could lead in the in the Cold War as it, the, the Cold War 2.0, as, as it were, uh, possibly thawing even between the, the United States and China. Yeah, but that's it proves once again that sanctions are uh, probably the most stupid method of coercion in modern history. It doesn't. It, it, it didn't work with Iran. It didn't work with Cuba. It didn't work with Venezuela. It didn't work with Russia. And it's not working with China. It's very simple. The Chinese, okay, uh, so we cannot buy what we need from uh, TSMC in Taiwan or NVIDIA. No problem. We're going to make it ourselves. And the capital was already there. And the main power and the extremely well-educated tech workforce was already there. So it was a matter of time. Um, I feel like, you know, during the Trump era, some of us were thinking, oh, shit, it's going to take them at least until 2027, 2028 to have breakthroughs. No, they, ha they had a, break a breakthrough in 2023. And, uh, and even when they launched um, the new Huawei Mate 60 Pro, with their own operating system, uh, with AI, uh, top, uh, top of the line AI and all that. Everybody in the West was, how did they do that? It's very simple. Uh, if, if, you if you visit Huawei's uh, uh, headquarters in Shenzhen and their research center, something that I did a few years ago, they're already thinking what's going to happen, in, what, what, what they were going to be using in 2030, 2035. So it's it's very, very simple. It's education, tech education, and planning. And of course, unlimited capital, because this is uh, directly linked to uh, the official uh, tech strategy, which was elaborated uh, even before uh, Trump came to power. And when Trump came to power, he looked at it and he freaked out. That's why he started uh, all those sanctions which is something that the Chinese were, were calling at the time, made in China 2025. Basically, by 2025, next year, they wanted to be top or near the top in 10 tech um, departments, including artificial intelligence, quantum physics, you name it. Mm -hmm. They're getting there. Uh, after the sanctions, they abandoned uh, the motto made in China 2025, which was freaking out the Americans big, big time. 
they stopped talking about it, but they continue to do the same thing. And they even allocated more capital to high-end research. And also research that they do, uh, I wouldn't say under the table, but in close collaboration, covert and overt, with Samsung, for instance, and with T uh, TSMC in Taiwan as well. So uh, this is all interconnected. And in, and in the high-tech world, everything is interconnected and information flows. Information could flow, for instance, uh, from uh, a WeChat message from one engineer in uh, Rotterdam to one engineer in Shanghai, for instance. And then you have a breakthrough. This is how it works. There's no censorship among uh, uh, this uh, politicization of science. This is something completely stupid. It doesn't exist. Scientists talk to each other. Uh, so obviously, this was bound to happen. Of course, it happened much faster than anyone could ever imagine. And now China, they can have all the chips that they need, 7NM, 5NM, 3NM, whatever, by 2025, which happened to be what they wanted to do in the first place when they came up with this concept of made in China 2025. Mm. I only have like maybe a couple of minutes left, but I, I just wanted to know what, what your thoughts are about when China has, has essentially really pushed ahead uh, of the United States. I mean, there was I, I'm thinking maybe the, the, the China-Russia alliance has been so there's been so much interaction there financially. Uh, I, I think it, it was probably around the time of that uh, that the the Russians, uh, well, the Russia Ukraine engagement, and then there was all sorts of that may have been a, a key moment because that's when you saw a shift, uh, you know, financially and and so on. Um, but I, I don't know, may, maybe it's it's even more recent or it's just accelerating, uh, you know, since then. But but when when you what would you hmm. say at the moment or moments? Well, Michael, Michael, this is what I write about every week. <laughs> it's literally, this is what I write about every week. This is what I think and discuss every week, wherever I am here in Europe or in Russia, or when I go to, to Southeast Asia or to Central Asia. And uh, it has to do with the Russia-China strategic partnership, which is something that very, very few people in the West even understand what it is and understand what it means and understand how it works. Very few people know that. And this is reflected in the, the personal encounters between Xi and Putin year after year in the discussion at the highest level uh, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Defense, and their tech uh, uh, environments as well. Uh, the Union of BRICS, which was basically a Russia-China-driven process. The two major powers on BRICS are Russia, China, and they coordinate how BRICS are organizing, going to expand, especially this year, where the Russian presidency of the BRICS will uh, uh, coordinate the next level of expansion. It's going to be BRICS 12, 15, 17, 18, probably uh, in Kazan, uh, the summit uh, later this year, in October this year. Uh, their uh, interaction in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative, 10 years old, is and the Eurasia Economic Union from 2015 
they are getting closer and closer together and you're going to have projects that uh, include countries that are members of the Euro European uh, the Eurasia Economic Union and the Belt and Road and expanding to countries with which the Eurasia Economic Union has free trade agreements. For instance, they have it with Vietnam. They just clinched one with Iran. So everything is interlocked. And the Russia-China strategic partnership is a sort of master coordinator of this whole process. And it includes military cooperation, which obviously none of us know the intimate details, but it's virtually sure that, for instance, the Chinese now have a, a access to Russian hypersonic technology. Wow. Because this has been discussed at the highest level by their ministries of defense. And the fact that their strategy in terms of trying to, uh, I would say, muzzle the hegemon. It's not to fight the hegemon. It's to try to muzzle um, a hegemon that is absolutely out of control now. It implies that they have to discuss all, all major decisions have to be taken at the highest level and they have to be coordinated. And this includes the way they are supporting by not supporting or even feigning they are supporting Gaza, mm -hmm. which is an extremely complex dossier where they act uh, a la Sun Tzu or they act in a very Chinese way, in total silence. And we know that when they are not uh, resolutely against something, it's because they are supporting it mm. in the background. Same thing about the whole axis of resistance. And this applies to Hezbollah, the militias in, uh, in Iraq, uh, uh, Iran, obviously, as a whole. Uh, the fact that uh, the Iran-Russia uh, military uh, relationship now is 100% on both sides. This is something that I, I, I had in Moscow a few months ago where the Iranians said, basically, we told the Russians, anything you need, you can get it. So it's at this level nowadays. And the same thing between Russia, China, and Iran, between the three of them. These are the three poles of Eurasia integration. Okay. So obviously, the Americans don't even understand how it works. So how they can counteract uh, a, a concerted drive and very well-organized strategy by these three major poles of Eurasia integration that applies to everything, high-tech, artificial intelligence, uh, um, uh, geopolitically, geoeconomically, and, and of course, doing everything they can to prevent a frontal clash with the Americans. Mm -hmm. There's no interest by Beijing or by the Kremlin to have a direct frontal clash with the Americans because they know how irresponsible and how unprepared the people who are running American foreign policy at the moment are. So mm -hmm. they are basically trying to contain and muzzle this uh, out-of-control, very dangerous animal. So if you don't understand these processes, which uh, the, uh, these people in the Beltway, for instance, don't, or the people at NATO don't, or the people at the European Commission don't, you don't understand what's happening in all across Eurasia and how what's happening in Eurasia is basically looked by the whole global South as 
okay, this is the next game in town. And it's now the only game in town. Because we, we simply cannot trust anything that the Americans say or do. They are, as the Russians defined it, uh, the uh, non-agreement capable empire. And what this Eurasia integration process is offering to the whole global South, to the Latin Americans, Southeast Asians, to Africans, etc., is uh, mutual respect, connectivity corridors, uh, trade, make trade not war, uh, rejection of forever wars, uh, multipolarity, uh, and basically a, a, a fair, equitable system of international relations which is something that they would like to implement at the UN, but not at the UN as we know it today, the way the UN works today, which is completely dysfunctional. So, so this is the macro picture of why, for instance, what happens if Russia has some difficulty in one field or Iran in another or China in another one, they can talk among themselves and try to find solutions among themselves and talk to their partners as well. In this... Uh, big, uh, let's say, the greater Eurasia partnership, which is a, a, a wonderful way that the Russians found to describe this process of integration. Pepe Escobar, it's been wonderful having you back on the show. Uh, I want to thank, thank you. you. And uh, yeah, all the best. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up again maybe in a, a few sometime, maybe a few months from now. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. That was my interview with Pepe Escobar. He's a correspondent and editor-at-large at Asia Times and columnist for Consortium News, The Cradle, and Strategic Culture. Since the mid-1980s, he's lived and worked as a foreign correspondent in London, Paris, Milan, Los Angeles, Singapore, Bangkok. He joined us this week from Paris. That's it for our show. Next week, we will be addressing climate change, a true concern or alarmism for alternate purposes. Check it out in seven days. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.